So Easter's in two weeks. You guys excited about that? All right. Hope Jesus is. Um, wow. Never knew Easter was depressing until today. Uh, who's, eat, who's already eaten their kids' uh, Easter candy? Anybody besides me? Okay. Um, I've already done that. Uh, so a couple things about Easter now that I have your attention that I really want to make sure uh, you get. Our services are at 9 and 1030 on a weekly basis. For Easter, we're changing that, just for Easter. So we're doing a service at 8, one at 930, and one at 11. So 8, 930, and 11. The 8 o'clock service is going to be the one that's the most difficult to fill. I get it. People don't want to get up early. But if you have the ability uh, to be here at 8, that would help us be able to free up seats at 930 uh, and 11. And so if you could do that, that'd be a help. The 8 o'clock service will not have uh, Gen Kids, uh, so nothing for uh, the, 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 little, the little kids, but 930 and 11 will. All three services are identical. We're going to baptize uh, in all three. And also this, we've got these that we're going to give you on the way out. They say, sit with me. We don't want you to just randomly invite people to come. We want you to intentionally invite people that you have connected with relation, relationally. Invite them to not just come, but to come uh, as your guest, sit with you, maybe take them to lunch after, uh, but invite them to, to participate in Easter with you. And then um, also we're going to be doing a 24-hour time of, of prayer and fasting. Uh, the fasting is 24 hours. The prayer is not. Like you don't have to pray for 24 straight hours. Um, but we invite you to join us in that. So what we're doing is we're going to open the building uh, for part of that time, but starting at 6 p.m. on Good Friday evening, it's about the time that Jesus went into the tomb, until 6 p.m. sunset on Saturday evening, we're going to observe a 24-hour fast. Anybody that wants to participate, uh, you can. If you've never fasted before, fasting is simply giving up food as a means of declaring to God that, that He's everything, that, that He's all that we truly need. And so uh, yeah, you're going to be hungry, you're going to be moody, but, um, but, it, but it's an, an incredible experience, and if you, if you join us in doing it, just know there'll be a lot of other people here that are just as miserable as you are, and so we'll all kind of be in it together. Uh, but then also there'll be times where the building will be open during that 24 hours. If you want to come in and pray quietly, bring your family, we've got some things for, uh, for our kids area as well. Check out our website, generationchurch.org slash prayer and fasting to get the schedule and, and all of the details, but I hope that, you'll, that you will uh, join us in that. Uh, listen, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Romans 6, where we left off last week. Father, uh, we just come before you, and we know that we need you. We know that a, apart from you, we, we can do nothing. And so right now, we just, we just sit in this place. We're, uh, we're listening. God, we have, we have ears to hear. We have hearts to understand. Uh, speak to us, and then I pray that we'd leave here uh, changed because of it. And I pray this, Jesus, all in your name. Amen. Um, do you ever find yourself uh, frustrated, maybe at times a lot, at the lack of progress you have as a follower of Jesus? Uh, ever, ever wonder why some mornings you don't wake up and just naturally have a love and desire for God? Do you, ever, do you ever wish you woke up more excited to read your Bible and to connect with Jesus? Like, I'll be honest with you, my first thought most mornings is not about Jesus. It's generally about uh, the standings of whatever sport is, is going on right then, or maybe a game I fell asleep uh, in the middle of, and I want to know who won. But like, you think through those things, you go, man, I, I, I wish I did that more. I wish I desired that more. I, I wish that I didn't find temptation so attractive and enticing. 
And if you, if you connect with any of those statements this morning, I want you to know the next two weeks are going to be really encouraging for you. Because Paul is going gonna, is gonna to get vulnerable about his own struggle with sin, especially in chapter 7 next week. But he's, but he's going to be open about where he is at, where his struggle is, and then he's going to do what he always does. He's going to point us back to the gospel, to the only uh, to the only truth that can help us, to the gospel that doesn't just save us, but it sustains us and it's changing us every day. And so if you remember last week where we left off, we talked about how uh, Paul said where, where sin abounded, God's grace like super abounded. The, the, the dam, like if sin is the South Fork Dam, then God's grace is the 20 million gallons of water that just kind of came rushing through that thing. And so Paul says, building on that in chapter six, like, okay, man, wherever sin is, God's grace is greater. So if that's the case, Romans six, verse one, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? And I gotta be honest with you, that seems like a pretty fair question. Like God is rich in grace and mercy and he desires to lavish it on us. He has a limitless supply of grace. So wouldn't it stand to reason that we want God's grace to have a place for it to flow. And if his grace is most visible and seen when we sin, doesn't it make sense that, hey, let's just sin more so God can dish out more of this grace that he wants to, to lavish on us? It seems like a fair question. It's like when you go, go out to eat, like maybe you go home to, to visit your parents and you go out to a restaurant and your dad says, hey, order whatever you want, like it's on me. Like we want to feel the full extent of his generosity, don't we? Like it's a game changer. Like for me, it's like, oh, well, if you're paying, um, I was going to get chicken tenders and something off the bottom shelf, but uh, could we get the waiter back over? I would like to hear about the catch of the day. Like, tell me more about that Wagyu steak. Tell me more about those bottles on that top shelf that I always look at, but would never dream of ordering. Like, Dad, I want to feel the full extent of your generosity. So doesn't it make sense that if God's grace is lavished on us, if God's grace super abounds where sin abounds, doesn't it make sense that we should just keep on sinning so that God can keep on showing his grace? In verse two, Paul answers the question and he says, of course not. Since we have died to sin, he says we're dead to sin. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? We're, we're dead to sin. Um, let me talk about sin just for a second because I think we have a general understanding of sin, like when I say sin, we all immediately go, oh, that's bad. Or if I say we're all sinners, we go, yeah, like I, I get it, like nobody's perfect. But to understand sin, I think you have a little bit, you need a little bit better understanding of the words that are used in the language that the, the Bible was written in. The Greek word for sin actually is an archery term that means to miss the mark. It's like picture, every, we're, all, we're all aiming at a target, none of us are able to hit the bullseye. We may get closer than, than others. You may be the closest one in the room, but none of us are able to achieve. None of, none of us are able to hit that target. Another definition would be to fail to achieve the goal. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, there's a verse that talks about failing to achieve a goal, and it uses the same word as the word, uh, as the word for sin. So it has this general meaning, but in the context of this conversation, meaning that we miss the mark, we fail to achieve the goal, you've got to know what the goal is. The goal is God's righteousness. Simply put, sin is every word that is spoken, it's every deed that is done, and it's every thought that is entertained that is in opposition to the heart, nature, and image of God. We are created in the image of God. So anything we do that does not reflect the image of God, any action, any word, any thought is to fall short of that standard is, is, is to sin. 
And so for, for the, the Jews in the Old Testament under the law, and for a lot of us today, we tend to focus on the more visible, blatant, and obvious ones. Like when you look at the Ten Commandments, what are the ones that we tend to be drawn to? We tend to be drawn to the ones that we haven't broken, right? Like we look at adultery. Uh, this isn't a judgmental statement, but probably most of the people in here have never had an affair. So we go, hey, don't commit adultery. I'm doing good there. That, that's a check in the box for me. Or murder. Again, hopefully none of us in here have ever murdered anybody. Um, but we go, man, I, I haven't killed anybody. It gets the, the room shrinks a little bit when I say stealing. Uh, some of us have stolen. Uh, I will admit I stole money from the church steeple fund at the church that I grew up in. Um, not proud of that, but hey, it's a great day at the arcade. Um, but, uh, but so the, the scope kind of narrows because we go, no, I've broken that one. But we look at the ones that we haven't done and we go, we must be doing okay because we're not committing the blatant obvious ones. But I said it's every thought that we entertain that isn't reflecting the image, character, and nature of God. So it's even our thoughts, and Jesus makes that link. Jesus makes the link in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. That kind of changes things, doesn't it? You've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, if you have hate in your heart towards someone, you're just as guilty. And doesn't, that, doesn't that kind of reshape everything? Because church people, we've done a really good job of stopping to do the obvious blatant ones, or at least stopping to do the obvious blatant ones where anyone else can see us. But we do a pretty lousy job of addressing what's happening at the thought level. And so sin is anything that's done, anything that's said, any thought that's entertained that, does, that is in opposition to the heart, nature, and image of God. And Paul says, Paul says, we have been dead to that. And if we're dead to it, how can we continue to live in it? He says in verse three, he says, maybe you forgot. He says in verse three, or have you forgotten that, that when we were joined with, with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. He says, when we joined Christ Jesus in baptism, now, now here's an important distinction to make. He's not referring to water baptism. The word baptism there means uh, to immerse or to dip. It's, it's a picture of death. There are two types of baptisms you'll see talked about in the Bible. One is a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the other one is, is baptism with water. So Jesus in John chapter 3 is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And with Nicodemus he says to him, you've been born once, you've had a physical birth. He says, but I tell you, you need to be born again. That's what, if you've ever heard the, the, the term a born again Christian, that's where it comes from. It comes from John chapter three. So Jesus says, now you need to be born again. That's a second birth. That's a baptism with the Holy Spirit. That when you and I say yes to Jesus' offer of eternal life, when we transfer our faith from anything that we've done and we put our faith in him and him alone to reconcile us back to God to pay for our sins, when we do that, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's the, the image that he's painting here, that we were joined with Christ in this baptism of receiving the Spirit of Jesus now living within us. And we are joined in his death. We died and were buried with Christ. Like, that, like this happened in the, in the past tense. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by his, the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. He says, in case you've forgotten about that, this is important. 
So if, you, if you've ever watched us baptize here at Generation, the reason we baptize the way we baptize is because it's a picture of what's happened internally and what he's talking about here in verses three and four. That internally where you can't see, you and I have been buried with Christ and we've been raised to walk new lives. That's why when we baptize people, we take them down into the water. It's, it's, not, it's not washing your sins away. It's just, <clears throat> excuse me, it's just a declaration or an announcement that that's already happened. Like it's already taken place within my heart. And then now when I'm baptized with water, I'm symbolizing what's happened with the spirit. When we baptize people, we ask them, have you given your life to Jesus? Do you promise to follow him for the rest of your life? And then we baptize them. And what we say is we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're baptizing you in the likeness of Jesus' death. And then when we bring them up out of the water, you're raised to walk new life. It's symbolic of something that's already taken place. We're baptizing again on, uh, on Easter. Like if you've never been baptized or maybe your story is like mine. I was, I was sprinkled as, a, uh, as an infant. And I don't, like with my parents, I'm not like mad at them that they did that, but that decision was for them. We didn't have a family meeting where they got my opinion about whether or not I wanted to do that. Like this is just something they did. But then when I was 18 years old and I had made the decision that I was going to follow Jesus, baptism for me became no longer a decision my parents made. It became a personal decision, a, a decision of identifying with what's taken place in my life. That's why, that's why we encourage people to get baptized after you've made the decision uh, to follow Jesus. And if you want to do that, if you're ready to do that, you can go to our website, generationchurch.org, or to uh, the Church Center app, and you can sign up to do that uh, on Easter Sunday with us. Um, and uh, you may be a little bit, I know sometimes <clears throat> we're nervous because it's like, man, I'm, I'm older, like, there's going to be, a, you know, like, are people going to look differently at me? Um, Listen, like, this is the best place to do it. We baptize staff members. You're like, man, we had staff members that weren't baptized. We absolutely did. Um, we baptize staff members. We're baptizing some of our student leaders on Easter. There are a lot of other people that are going to get judged way more than you. So if you're kind of hesitant with that, like, just, just, go, ahead and, just go ahead and take that step. Uh, but, so we're going to do that on Easter, and we'd love to have you participate with us. But, but Paul is saying, remember that this is what happened. We died with him and we are raised to live with him as well. And when we watch people get baptized with water, we're reminded that the resurrection worked and we're reminded that we, just like Jesus, are raised to walk in new life. So he makes, gives them this reminder, and then he tells them something to know and something that he wants them to believe in verse six. He says, we know. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. He says, we are free from the power of sin right here and right now. L listen, you have to know this. You have to believe this. Like, like we have to believe that what he's saying is true. That, that's why he starts with what I want you to know and what I want you to believe before he starts telling them what to do. Because if we don't believe this, everything he says beyond this isn't going to matter. He starts at the belief level because he knows that belief, what we believe ultimately shapes how we live. Belief shapes behavior. We see this lived out all the time, those of you that golf. Some of us hit, the, the, hit a ball in the water on the same hole every single time we golf. Why? Because we've convinced ourselves that it's going to happen. 
You get over the shot. You've been joking about it the whole way to the tee box. And you're like, here comes another donation to the golf club. And then, bam, you hit the shot and it goes in the water and you're frustrated. Why that happened? Well, you've convinced yourself it's going to happen. Some of you boys in here, there's a girl that you're interested in and you won't send her a message. Why? Because you're convinced that she's not going to be responsive. If you thought she would be responsive, you would send the message, right? And so he's making the, the point that we've, we've got to understand this at a belief level before it can translate into, into how we live and how we function. And what we believe about the power of sin will determine how we live. He says, you've got to believe that you've been set free from the power of sin, that you and I are victorious, not because of anything that we've done. We walk in victory because of what Jesus has done. It's his victory. We just share in it. Uh, we're my UNC fans today, this morning. How many of you told God if they won, you'd be here today? Yeah, there is zero doubt. Some of you, this is the, okay, God. Uh, there's some that stayed home and UNC is going to lose tomorrow night because of that. Um, but, uh, but, but how many of you are celebrating today? You're walking in the victory of the Tar Heels. Come on, let's see you. What did you actually do? Yell at the TV, right? I know some of you, Lee Dunn's in here. I know you were mad that Hubert Davis did not call a timeout early in the second half. It's, it's, it's Roy Williams all over again. We're going to lose with three timeouts on the board. So you're, you know, you're yelling at the TV. You're yelling at the coach, spilling queso on your jersey. That's what you did. But what are you doing today? You're walking in their victory, right? Like you're sharing in their victory. That's, that's, uh, that's what we do as fans. Jesus is victorious. I'm not victorious. But I walk in, I celebrate, I share in his victory. And if Jesus is victorious over sin, if Jesus' victory grants freedom from the power of sin, I share in that victory and I walk in that victory. And it starts with believing it. Amen. We've got to believe that it's true. And then in verse 11, he says, so you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. He says, consider or count yourself dead to the power of sin. Uh, because we are freed from the power of sin, we can now consider or count ourselves to be dead to its, its power in our lives. The, the word count uh, or, or consider uh, is a word that means to look at something and to declare it to be something else. So just think like playing cards, like maybe you're playing a round of cards and the wild is always changing and maybe sevens are wild. And you get dealt, a, you get dealt your hand and you've got two sevens. Like on most hands, those are sevens. But on the occasional hand, you're like, no, these are way better than sevens. These are whatever I want them to be. It says that you and I have the choice, that we believe that we are free from the power of sin. And because we believe we have victory, because of what Jesus has done, that now we can declare ourselves to be something that we, in fact, are not. We are only victorious because of Jesus. He says, count yourself dead to the power of sin. This means that we look at life differently. This means we look at the, the choices we make differently, the temptations that we feel differently, that we're able to declare ourselves dead to its power. And now you say, but wait a second, if I'm dead to the power of sin, then why do I keep sinning? Because he talks about this in verse 17. I believe that Paul knows he's talking to a bunch of sincere people who truly want to follow Jesus, but it's like, man, some days I want to follow him and some days I don't. Some days I wake up in the morning and I surrender control of all of my life to him. And by nine o'clock in the morning, I'm like, I want that back. 
And so he's writing to people who are sincere and they, and they sincerely want to, want to follow him and they want to do what he's saying. And so you say, well, man, if I'm dead to sin, why do I keep sinning? Like I'm supposed to leave here today feeling better and I feel really lousy right now. There's a difference between power and influence. Sin has lost its power in our lives, but it most certainly has not lost its influence. And power and influence are two very different things. I have no control over power, but I do have the choice over influence. It's a difference between your boss and your coworker. Your boss can tell you what, you, what to do. Your coworker can persuade you. One has power, one has influence. Sin has lost its power, but it certainly has not lost its influence. For a lot of us, sin continues to live rent-free in our heads. It's lost its power, but its influence is as strong as it's ever been. That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That's why we preach the gospel over our sin. I mean, some days I don't feel like I'm freed from the power of sin, and so I come back to what I know what I believe and what I can declare to be true. We preach it to ourselves every day that sin has lost its power and authority. You may have influence, but you no longer have power. I now can choose how I respond to temptation, how I can respond to the things that, that surround me. So he says, declare or count yourself dead to the power of sin and instead count yourself alive to God through Christ. We are, we are in Christ. When we are born again, we are, we are in Christ. That means when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus to reconcile us to God, the Spirit of Jesus comes to live within us. So the Spirit of Jesus is living in us, and then we're placed in, in Jesus. So that's, we, we've talked about this before, but the water in the water bottle. Like right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is the bottle, you are the water. Everything that's true about Jesus is true about you. Everything that's true about this bottle is true about the water because the water is in the bottle. Like if I throw this bottle, if I lose this bottle, if I hide this bottle, everything that's true about the bottle is true about the water because the water's in the bottle. Everything that is true about Jesus is true about you and I because we are in Christ. So that means if Jesus died, that means that we died. That means if Jesus lives, that means we live. That means if Jesus is victorious, that means that we are victorious. That means that whatever Jesus lived for, you and I now live for. Jesus made it very clear he lives for the, the glory of God. So that means every relationship that we find ourselves in is an opportunity to declare the glory of God in that relationship, in that person's life. I mean, it, it, it changes the way husbands, we treat our wives. Wives, the way you treat your husbands. It changes the way we, we interact with our kids. That, that now in the life of my kids, am I reflecting the image, character, and nature of God in the way that I treat them? Am I reflecting the image, character, and nature of God in the lives of the people that I work with? People that live in my neighborhood? Am I reflecting the image, nature, and character of God in the private places of my life, including my thoughts that no one can see except him? Whatever is true about him is true about me. Paul in 1 Corinthians takes it to the even mundane level. He says, whatever you eat or drink. I mean, the, the most mundane tasks are now looked at differently because these are an opportunity to reflect the character, nature, 
an image of God and to, and to bring glory to him. And then Paul in verse 12 kind of goes back to what he said in verse 2. He says, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to its sinful desires. This means to habitually, to consistently, to live without remorse or course correction. It means to not be comfortable with. It means we live differently. We don't justify the things that we do. Have you ever noticed how we tend to justify behavior and choices in our lives that we would never allow or tolerate in the life of someone else, that we judge others for? This plays out in my life often right out here on 42. Like if you live off of Glen Lowell Road and you're turning left onto 42 and you're going onto 70, we all know you got to get in the right lane. Like you, and you need to get in the right lane pretty quickly, right? If, the, like, let's, if you live off of, let me just help you. If you live off of Glen Lowell Road, there are two turn lanes under 42. Do not get in that left lane unless you're prepared to go at least 60 miles an hour and quickly, right? Like you'll save the rest of us headaches. But, but so I try to do the good, try to be a good citizen, you know, because people see my car, they know me, you know, they know I represent Jesus. So I try to get in the right lane as quickly as I can. And generally speaking, most mornings I do. And I get super frustrated. If you haven't gotten in the right lane by the time you get to Speedway, you need to just go left on 70. Like, I'm going to make a new law. I'm going to start putting cones out. you got to get over at least by then. But it never fails. Man, you, you come up on the light at Speedway, things slow down, and you see the idiots just fly by. And you know what they're going to do. And they think as long as they throw the turn signal on as they're cutting you off, everything's cool. Like, maybe flash a wave like I'm diving in. Does, it, does that frustrate anybody else, or am I the only one? <clears throat> okay, I hate it. But I got to tell you, there's sometimes I need to do it. There are sometimes I'm the jerk. But man, when you do what I do, when you're keeping people out of hell, like that's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> and so when I do it, it's okay. When I do it, it's justifiable. When you don't, we're going to have a problem. And so think about all of the things in life that we do. Parents, we do this to our kids too. The things that frustrate us most about our kids probably frustrate us most about our kids because what they're guilty of is exactly the same thing we do, right? And so, and so sin is moving to a point where we're not okay with it. We're not justifying it. We're aware of it. We're not, we're not comfortable with it. John said uh, that, we can, that we can no longer sin knowingly and, and uncaringly, that something about us has to change. And so he says, I want you to know, I want you to believe that you're freed from the power of sin, that you can consider or declare yourself to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ. And then in verse 13, he says, do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. He says, don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. Give yourselves completely to God, that means surrender. Surrender is a battle term. It implies giving up all rights to the conqueror. When an opposing army surrenders, they lay down their rights 
They lay down their privileges. And the winners take control from then on. It is, there are not conditions to surrender. There is not partial surrender. Surrender is complete and total. It's not a merger. It's a complete takeover. And voluntarily surrendering control of our lives to God happens through surrendering control of our lives to the spirit of Jesus that is already living within us. In Galatians 5, we're told that if we allow the Holy Spirit to, to uh, surrender control of our lives to the Spirit, he'll lead us and he'll guide us. In Ephesians 4, and 23, it says, throw off your old sinful nature, like throwing off a garment in your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Letting the Holy Spirit <clears throat> guide our lives starts at the, at the heart. Like the work the Spirit is looking to do is not at the behavior level. That's where we focus. Like if you notice in, in our lives, like <clears throat> when do we get uh, concerned about something in our life? Well, when we behave in such a way that other people see it. Like we're, like we're not embarrassed that we lost our temper at our kids. We're embarrassed that we lost our temper at our kids and a bunch of other people saw it. Like we're, like we're often not convicted and challenged at a heart level, at a thought and attitude level, we're challenged when it becomes a behavior and all of a sudden other people see it. And the Holy Spirit cares about our behavior, but the Holy Spirit, it's like, a, it's like a tree. The Holy Spirit isn't looking to change the fruit that's growing on the tree. He's looking to change the, the root structure that's growing in the ground and you change the roots and then what you produce on the tree is gonna change. The Spirit says surrender comes as you and I begin to surrender control of our, our thoughts and our attitude. Surrender control at the belief level. And surrendering allowing is allowing the Holy Spirit to have complete access and full control to lay down our arms, to lay down our rights, to lay everything down in pursuit of, of him. And that's what the Spirit is offering to do for us today. Man, you say, I want to get to the point where I believe I'm dead to the power of sin? allow the Holy Spirit to begin to, to renew, to reshape, to change what's taking place at the thought level. Paul gives us three things. He says, believe that we're free from the power of sin. That's the first and most important thing. You've got to believe it. And then count yourself dead to the power of sin and alive in Christ. And give yourself completely to God. Choose to surrender control of all of your life to him, beginning at the heart level, at the, the mind, the will, the emotions. Would you stand with me? We preach the gospel to ourselves every day because <clears throat> we forget it every day. This is part of the truth of the gospel that we are free from the power of sin. We are dead to the power of sin. I want you to believe that this morning. So Father, right now, we just ask that you would reveal, that you would show us what is broken. Show us what it looks like to become more like Jesus. And Jesus, we share in your victory. It's nothing we've done, nothing we could do. 
We celebrate it. We share in it. We walk in it. And what we believe about your victory will determine how we live and whether or not we will walk in that victory as well. Holy Spirit, speak. Jesus, we thank you for giving us that victory. It's in your name we pray it.